Hello, Legionaries, and welcome to Legion Cast, Episode 1, Horus Rising. Today, we're going to be talking about the first book of the Horus Heresy season. I am your host, Warwick, and joining me is my friend, Brandon. Hello, Legion brothers, Legion sisters, and my often forgotten tech priests of Mars. Welcome to Legion Cast. Hello. So, Brandon, what have you been working on? What's on your hobby table? Yeah, um, so my hobby table is full shall we say. Uh, I've got a few projects running concurrently. I've been working on some Fire Slayers for Age of Sigmar. Um, I'm also doing a hobby challenge in my local club so that, uh, and uh, working on corn for that, even though corn in Age of Sigmar right now has seen better days. But I uh, got that going on, and then I also just recently finished up a, uh, a Dark Angels tactical squad for Heresy. I believe those are up on our socials or will be shortly. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's a lot of what I've got going on right now. I've got some projects lined up as well once I finish off uh, these that I've got on my table at the moment. What about uh, what about you, Warwick? Very cool. I have been working on consolidating all of my miscellaneous boxes of models. I was able to move a bunch of my camping gear down to the garage and make room for all the unassembled junk that I have now. I am a plastic fiend, but I am terrible about participating in the hobby itself sometimes. But I have made time to start assembling some of my Horace Heresy stuff. So I got my Contemptor Dreadnought together. It's the first one I've put together, and it's an awesome model. Basically, all of it is articulated, so you could... I, I didn't. But on the next one, I will. You could do a really dynamic pose with these. Uh, I think they're. it's just an amazing model. I built mine with the Power Claw, Grav, uh, grav Gun, and the Auto Cannon, and the, uh, the Carapace Missile Launcher. So it, it's a really mean-looking model. It's very detailed. E- even though it's just plastic, I, I really like it. Uh, on top of that, uh, next up on my to-do list, I'm looking at my Kratos. I haven't decided how I'm going to build it yet. I think just the, the standard build is pretty mean, but I also I also really like how the Volkites work on the table. So I may I have to decide if it's going to he's just going to be a heavy support or if he's going to be anti-infantry. I haven't really decided yet. I found that if you have a model that's kind of a mix of both, it doesn't excel at either. So that's that's kind of my thoughts. What about you? What's uh, what's up next uh, for you? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. You know, they it's kind of that Moncur you heard back in the day with Space Marines, how they were the jack of all trades and master of none. Uh, that being said, I think yeah. the Kratos is pretty easy to magnetize. So hopefully, that turns out to be the case. Next, that's good to know. Sorry. Next up on my table is Cabanda who I just picked up and I was just showing Warwick before we started recording, but really excited to get him going. Uh, really cool looking model. Uh, I know that there were some people who were a little bit iffy on whether or not they were going to get him or not. I am a total collector of all things corn. Uh, there is really just no price that is too high that uh, if it's a model that I do not possess, uh, unless it's made out of Citadel Finecast, in which case... Any price is too high. Yeah, very true. Well, um, what are you excited about? I can start us off there. I'm really looking forward to the squat models, the uh, Leagues of Votan. 
because uh, I know that's kind of a dorky name. I think that's just GW trying to kind of justify. I, I don't think they can, you know, it's like when they tried to copyright Space Marines. So they had to come up with uh, with something new. I mean, Adeptus Astartes was always around, but you know what I'm trying to say. It's like they can't copyright squats, probably. They are so copyright they friendly squats. Copyright friendly squats. That's a great way of putting it. But that being said, the models look freaking awesome to me. I'm really looking forward to picking some up. Um, I know 40K is not my favorite thing right now. I'm much more excited about uh, game, uh, Horus Heresy gameplay wise, uh, just because, uh, it's got that, uh, more sixth edition feel, right? Yeah, I definitely agree. It's got kind of more of that old school feel how you and I, when we started with 40 K, um, which is what really draws me into it. Um, I, I just, Mm -hmm. I know there are a lot of people who really love ninth edition 40 K. Um, and that is awesome. I'm, I'm so happy that there are people that do, it's just not for me. Um, I've, I really haven't loved it since I've loved the models. Um, and I've loved that they've been moving the story forward. All of that has been great, but that old kind of crunchy type gameplay, I really miss that. And then I don't love stratagems, honestly. Uh, but I'm glad that you're excited about leagues of Votan. Um, the, the moon Rover truck looks pretty cool. Oh yeah, I'm looking at that right now, and it's got a ton of detail. It looks like it's got a bunch of uh, a bunch of weapon options, a bunch of different you know extra bits and bobs to it, and uh, like multiple kind of pilot or gunner uh, models for it. It it looks really neat. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, on my end, I'm I'm really excited about uh, the Leviathan Dreadnought. Uh, that's coming out for Horus Heresy here pretty soon. But I know we wanted to talk about that and our hobby news section. So uh, if you're good with that, let's go ahead and, and jump forward to, to the news. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get to it. The um, So the Leviathan Dreadnought model looks really cool, the new plastic model that they're previewing. Um, but as we found out, it looks like they're going to do two different boxes for it, a ranged variant and a melee variant instead of just one model with multiple options. So if you want, if you want options for either one, you're going to have to buy both basically. So I, I find that really annoying when GW does stuff like that. Um, From what I've been told, it's somewhat easy to magnetize, um, which to me, I, I am all for GW building kits that are magnet friendly. Like, uh, Warwick and I talk about this all the time when we're selling tit- people on Titanicus, on Adeptus Titanicus, because uh, that's one of our favorite games. But the fact that you can buy a Warlord Titan and you can, the, the magnets just slot right in. There's no green stuff, there's no drilling. You just got to get the right size magnet, plop it right in, and then you have a fully magnetized Warlord Titan. The Reavers and Warhounds, eh, a little tiny bit more work, but still very magnet friendly. And I just wish that they would fully lean into that. And I would feel a lot better about buying an $80 Dreadnought if I knew, okay, I I get the initial high startup cost. Hell, even charge more. I don't care. Um, But if I just include that ability for me, if I do a little extra work from a hobby perspective, that it's going to save me money in the long run. 
because if you don't, that's how I lean. That's why you know I'll lean into 3D printing some bits or stuff like that. I have no problem with 3D printing. I don't love people who 3D print their entire army. It's just not for me. Um, right. But if I think that there would be a lot of success there for GW if they would just lean into a little more customization among their models. So something like this, where they have a one that has all the ranged weapons and one that has all the close combat weapons, that's just that to me feels like a cash grab, and I'm not here for it. Right, or even just uh, you know selling. Do you like they did the the Forge World variant where you'd buy the body and then you would have the option to pick up the wet? Like just sell a weapon sprue. It's that easy. Um, seems like that would save people a lot of trouble. Yeah, and, and and I agree definitely is um, it, that's actually another question I have is so I have the Dark Angels, Leviathan, Dreadnought. When is this new plastic one? Are are the arms going to be compatible? You know, it, I know with the Contemptors they quit making the the resin arms, so I would love to get that Dark Angels Contemptor with all the heraldry across it because it looks super cool. Right. But is it compatible with my plastic contemptor? I don't know, and that's really holding me out of the purchase. I could probably find out, obviously, but it's just right. it's something so I'm concerned about. I, I'm in a similar boat because there's the Ultramarines contemptor with all the heraldry on it, but I have no desire to pick it up right now because, like you said, they don't make arms for it anymore. So if the pieces aren't interchangeable, what's the point? Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I've seen some people who they've done it, but I, while I, you know, will do some extra work on my hobby, I am not going to sit here and be like, I'm an expert with a hand drill and with green stuff and making all of these magnets work in crazy ways. There are some kits that have been designed before, and I know you know what I'm talking about, where it is just downright unfriendly to magnetize. Looking at you, Imperial Knights. Oh, yeah, I was going to say that because I went to try and magnetize mine and it was, I I could have put more, I haven't even finished it yet. It's been on a shelf for years now, but uh, I went to magnetize it and nothing would slot the way I wanted it to. And I remember like in one of the shoulder sockets, I was basically uh, putting sprue shavings and filling it in with super glue and green stuff just so I could see the magnet in it. And I was like, why am I even doing this? Why do I care this much? At this point in the amount of work I've done, I, I'd be just as happy gluing the arms on and calling it good. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you there. So we, we saw again, I I'll bring it up again. We saw with Titanicus where they seemed like they were kind of going a different route and making things more magnet friendly. We got to look into this Leviathan dreadnought more obviously, but I would love to see them go in right. a direction. Hell you're a billion dollar company or pounds governor, <laughs> but <laughs> the, you could sell your own magnets. You could make a kit that says, Hey, magnetize your Imperial Knight with all these magnets that you're going to sell for way too expensive, but you could do it. Right. And I know we don't like griping about the hobby all that much. It's, you know, it's whatever. I'm, I'm a fan either way. The, The prices don't, I'm not real happy about the prices, what I'm trying to say, but it has not dissuaded me from the hobby yet. Uh, I think that their, uh, their quality is without question. 
model wise. I mean, we're to this day, we're getting some of the best models they've ever made. Prices be damned. So, I mean, how much can we really complain about it? Yeah, and but, and I agree completely. Um, it it hasn't gotten me out of the hobby, but it has gotten me to cut corners. Um, so they sell. I know they sell their. Dark, you know, they do it for all the legions and Horus Heresy. They have the shoulder pads with the Legion heraldry on it. Now, I, you know, I enjoy a good narrative game, especially for 30k. It's my favorite era and area of lore that Black Library does. That's why we started a podcast about it. But if you're going to charge me 20 bucks to get 10 shoulder pads, I've got 80 Mark VI Marines. I'm just going to find a buddy with a 3D printer, because the files exist so that's just that's money you're losing out on that you don't have to lose out on and i completely agree with you i i want to be positive we are seeing amazing models we're seeing great rule sets um the game's in a good place uh, across most of their games i i wouldn't say that there's a game that is truly in a bad place for games workshop right now there are games that i don't enjoy personally but that doesn't mean they're bad uh, right I just think that there are some things that they could do to appeal and be a bit more customer friendly. And it would just incentivize me to spend even more money with them. Right. And I ran into the same thing shoulder pads wise, because I was looking at what it was going to be like to, uh, to get the shoulder pads for all of my tactical Marines. And I just said, there is no way I'm buying these forge world ones. So, you know, I went on, on the good old internets and I found just uh, just 3D printed Ultimas that attach to the shoulder pad itself. It's not a whole shoulder pad. And I got, you know, like a hundred of them for, I think like 30 bucks. So, you know, yeah, that, that's got me sold. I think it's it's much more friendly to the, to the average customer. So, I don't know. It seems like aspects like that, Games Workshop really does lag behind for it. What they're doing seems to me to be counterintuitive from a marketing standpoint because they're not always appealing to the customers. Does that make sense? Or am I speaking nonsense? No, I definitely agree. Um, and I, I agree with you completely, 100%. Uh, for those of you who hear the crackling, that is Warwick opening <laughs> his shoulder pads or his Ultima symbols. Um, that is not anyone opening a candy bar. <laughs> Although that sounds pretty good right that's, now. That's my bad. I didn't. I didn't think it would be that crackly, but you know, bubble wrap. No, no problem. Um, I think we've probably ranted about magnets and three D printers enough. Should we? Uh, should we go ahead and move into uh, the meat of the podcast here, which is Horus Rising, the book, the first book. Yeah, the first book. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting into this. Uh, it is an amazing jumping off point for the galaxy as a whole. So. Well, let's uh, let's take a quick break and then we'll get into it. Absolutely, we'll see you there. Hey guys, Brandon here with Legion Cast Podcast. Um, we had such a fun time breaking down Horus Rising for you, and now I'm coming at you before that breakdown through the magic of editing. 
um, because there was one key thing that we really forgot to mention and that we wanted to make sure that we went back and added into the to the episode, which is the next book. Um, we are going to be moving from Horus Rising into False Gods by Graham McNeil, another great book. Uh, but we just kind of got so into talking about Horus Rising that we forgot to to let let you guys the audience know about that uh, so wanted to come back here and add that in uh, so we're looking forward to you guys joining us in the next episode after you enjoy this one thank you Welcome back, everyone. Uh, now it's time for really the meat section here, where we get into uh, the first book of the Horus Heresy, Horus Rising. Yeah, this is a great starting off point for the series as a whole, not just 30K, but it really sets a lot of groundwork for 40K. And Dan Abnett, the author, does a great job of really painting a picture of the whole, the whole universe. So you get a lot of bits and pieces here foundational characters that make decisions that affect the rest of the galaxy for the next 10,000 years. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's a great way that you put it, that it lays a lot of the groundwork for what we know in 40 K. Um, and for people who, who are not familiar with the 40 K uh, lore who are, are really just joining us. And this is their first dip into, you know, the, the Warhammer universe. First off, welcome. Um, second, this, if you're, if you're a history person at all, you, you may have heard of World War One referred to as the seminal tragedy of the 20th century. And that's what this is. That's what the Horus Heresy is to the Warhammer universe. Everything 10,000 years down the line in for Warhammer 40,000 can really be drawn back to it is the way it is because of what happened at this time for the civil war that really was only a couple of years long uh it's not a very long event but it is so shaping to the galaxy of this universe so warwick why don't you uh why don't you kind of give us a quick synopsis of you know kind of talk about you know when we get into the book it talks about the great crusade uh and the emperor of mankind can you give us a quick rundown of what those are uh for maybe for someone who's not as familiar with the setting as we are right so uh over the course of time humanity developed into a spacefaring race and they launched off into all the different corners of space uh at, at the peak of their sophistication and culture and gradually over time, so many of these colonies were eventually separated by time, distance. And the big, uh, the big one is what they call the, uh, the Age of Darkness or um, a Long Night. Or Old Night, sorry. Um, so Old Night was this galaxy-spanning cataclysm that cut off communication transportation between many of these far-flung colonies so as time passes earth or as they call it terra in the uh, in the universe a man 
comes along, calling himself the Emperor of Mankind, unites the warring factions of Earth, and eventually launches what he calls the Great Crusade to reunite the lost fragments of humanity. Old Knight falls, returning uh, humanity's ability to, you know, reach out amongst the stars once again. And aiding the Emperor in this process are these legions of bioengineered super soldiers called Space Marines or the Adeptus Astartes. The, each one of these legions, um, 20 legions, but we only know of 18, are founded on a genetic template founded by the Emperor of a modified clone of himself. So the Emperor effectively has these 18 sons that then found their own legions, but the Primarchs get lost right at the dawn of the Great Crusade. So over the years, I think it's about 200, 300 years of Great Crusading, the Emperor eventually finds his lost sons and reunites them with his legions that then effectively conquer the entire galaxy. And, you know, as they find out traversing the stars, uh, the galaxy is just a nightmare place to exist because it is overwhelmed with hostile aliens, these malignant powers that uh, are more than willing to subjugate, destroy, enslave anything they come across. So uh, humanity has a heck of a time reuniting their lost colonies. So, you know, they'd they'd turn up to some planets and they'd be greeted with open arms saying, oh, you're the ones that, you know, you spawned us, you know, we're the, the fruit of your loins and all that. But some of them would be in total denial. And that's where we kind of open up on this book. So the expedition that the War Master Horus... Yeah, and I, I think that one thing, before we jump into the first chapter of the book, which great summary of where we've been and how we got to, to the start of the book, Warwick, thank you. Um, but when we just say that the, the Emperor of Mankind is a man... Um, we're being a bit loose with the way that you or I or lis- our listeners would think of a man. The Emperor is 10 feet tall. He it has psychic powers. He's the most powerful psyker in humanity, which psychic powers are a thing that exists in, the, in this universe. Um, he is just this, in every aspect of himself, larger than life concept and that's going to be important as we get into and dig into some of the things that happen in this book Uh, but that's something to keep in mind and the other thing to keep in mind is that these genetic clones of himself his sons if you will and i use quotes uh, because that's a bit of a hot topic among some of the primarchs as they're as they're known (laughs) Um, they're also these larger than life massive like they, they would be a giant to you or i and I think that the book does a, a really good job of like explaining that and how normal humans react um, to to their presence. But yeah, with that explained, uh, yeah, Warwick, if you want to jump into the first first thing that we we really see here, uh, please take it from here. Right. So as I was saying, uh, the great. I totally forgot to sum that up. The Emperor is just this crazy larger-than-life figure, and so are all of his uh, his descendants. So, as I was saying, 
some of these worlds greeted the, the crusading forces with open arms saying, we're finally reunited with the whole of humanity. But some people would be in denial because they have this own idea in their mind that they are the, tr- the chosen uh, product of humanity. They are humanity as the galaxy intends it. They have no need of this, this false empire that's reclaiming the stars. So we start off on a planet designated 6319. It is the 19th world to be brought to compliance by the 63rd Expedition Fleet. So, they send forth, it's a human world in a system comprised of nine worlds orbiting a yellow sun, the third world calling itself Terra. So, the Whoremaster, the, the Warmaster is a little skeptical of this. He, uh, so he sends forth an envoy to the Emperor of Mankind, I use quotations there, saying, you know, we are the true legions of humanity we would like to bring you back into the fold. So Warmaster Horus sends forth his favorite envoy, Haster Serjanus, who is one of his favored legionaries. He is a captain of the uh, fourth company. And he is also a member of a particular good old boys club called the Mornival, who it's, it's a little committee made up of four veteran captains that advise the Warmaster. So Haster Sejanus is uh, Horus's favorite instrument in this because he's got all the charisma of a main sequence star. He's just, you know, this, once again, a larger than life figure who everybody loves. He's, uh, he's just a very charismatic envoy for this. And he's also an amazing warrior on top of that. The Crusades have been a very grueling uh, task thus far. So many of these diplomats also have their own kind of honor roll. Yeah, I am. I, I just I want to jump in there when when you talk about it being such a grueling task um, and rewind a bit to where we are just coming from. We are coming from a, a section of, of the Great Crusade that is known in the book and to us now as the Triumph at Olinor. Um, and that is where the orcs, uh, because there are orcs in this setting um, as well their their kind of main empire was really broken by the emperor at olinor and it was this massive triumph there was i think like nine legions there um very huge affair and at this point the emperor announced i am retiring from the great crusade uh you guys my sons uh the primarchs can can pick it up from here but you need a leader and for that, I am going to pick my favored son, Horus, the head of the 16th Legion, the Luna Wolves. And I'm going to name him War Master of the Great Crusade. Y'all have fun. I'm going back to Terra. Don't call me. Exactly. So Horus has been War Master for about a year now. And this is... Um, there There have been some skirmishes between the Triumph at Olinor and this test at 6319. Nothing nothing grueling, basically skirmishes. Now, 6319 turns out to be a pretty tough nut to crack because Horus sends forth his envoy. They get to the throne room, and the false emperor there decides that Haster Sejanus doesn't offer correct fealty to him and has him hacked down in the throne room. Now, Horus is pretty livid about this because, you know, Sejanus is one of his favorites. Not, you know, he's... 
everybody, they, you know, the way they write it in the book, everybody's Horace's favorite. That's just how it is. But there's a special place for Sejanus and Horace's heart. But instead of completely losing his cool and glassing the planet, he sends a second envoy. Well, the envoy, the second envoy only gets about halfway there before it gets shoot, shot out of space. So they launch the invasion and it is a real slobber knocker. They land uh, several companies of space marines and they land like six uh, Legio Titans. And the Titans are these gigantic war machines that they're bigger than skyscrapers. They level whole cities. They're, they're super mean. Uh, yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna get some time with the Titans as we move on through this novel series, and it is some of my favorite writing in the series is when we get to get behind the princeps of one of these just gods of war. Absolutely. So this is where we start getting really introduced to characters. Like we've got a little bit of backstory on Sejanus, but. Unfortunately, he's gone. I would have liked more stories with him. Now, the the bulk of the the bulk of the perspective is from this captain Garviel Loken, and he is the captain of the tenth company. Now, Loken really distinguishes himself in this battle because he is the first one to breach the Emperor's palace and goes to take him captive and bring him to the Warmaster's feet to you know, make fealty to the Warmaster. Brandon, you want to take it from here for a minute? I feel like I've been talking a while. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's there's a few things that happen in this section uh, that are that I think are important. Um, one, this is where, as you said, uh, Captain Loken distinguishes himself. Um, but I think it's important to acknowledge as well that he just sees this as doing his job He's not worried about who breached the palace first, who makes it there first. He is not a, for lack of a better term, glory hound, uh, like some of his fellow uh, Legionis Astartes are. Um, but then he gets up to the throne room, and he finds the false emperor there who asks... Uh, to surrender to the war master directly um, in which he passes this request along and then this conversation ensues um, and it kind of infor infers the the theme of this first section of this book and, and where this this old man claiming to be the emperor of mankind he says to loken you could have just left us alone um and, and we're, we're going to see that theme of, well, could we have actually just left these people alone? Uh, they weren't hurting anybody. They were just kind of doing their own thing. We came here, said, join up, get with the program, or you're going to beget, beget got with the program. Yeah. So um, I, it's a really interesting conversation that, that they go through. And I think what's most important is it. this kind of turns this key in in loken's mind because loken is the main character of the, of this story you know the, the the horus heresy is about horus and it's about the primarchs but for the most part it's told from the perspective of these soldiers in these legions but it turns this key in his mind of why are we actually doing this like what is the purpose other than it is what we have been ordered to do 
and some some events ensue. Um, Horus does show up as Loken realizes this is actually a trap to try and kill Horus. Uh, but Horus shows up, goes full Primarch mode, blows the actual Emperor who's sitting invisible in his throne off that throne, just straight Stormbolt around to a, to the chest, which for my gun enthusiasts out there, a, a Bolter is functionally a grenade, a fully automatic grenade launcher that's magazine fed. Like, it is not a small weapon. And a storm bolter is basically two of those welded together. Exactly. Um, and, but then there's there's one line in this section here that I really think is so important, and you can breeze right past it if you aren't looking. And that is that Horus kills this false emperor, and he says, I can't remember the exact line, and I don't have my my physical copy in front of me, but he says, I... So, yeah. so shall I deal... So shall I deal with all tyrants and deceivers? Yes. Or all despots and deceivers? Something Ty- like that. No, I believe he does use the word tyrant. Uh, and that's that's important because this small line here sets the stage for everything that is to come. Um, and we're going to dig into that, as especially over the next two books, as we get into like how Horus fell out from the Emperor. But he, just in this one small line, we establish that Horus hates anyone he perceives as a tyrant yeah and it it really sets him up for some motivate motivations coming down the line exactly so we we move past this initial battle uh of this campaign and 6319 is brought to compliance and then we get kind of a view of what does that mean um and i think the word compliance is actually an interesting use here um because when we talk about the great crusade and how it is kind of publicized it's oh we are reaching out across the stars to gather humanity in and we're all together and we sing sit around the campfire and eat s'mores and sing kumbaya but when they actually are out doing it it is called compliance it is not liberation it is not conquering it is you are brought to compliance you will listen to what we say and you will yeah we don't care we don't care what shaped peg you are we are going to hammer you into an aquila shaped hole exactly square peg aquila shaped hole you will fit exactly so the um the compliance is a little rocky post emperor dealings because there are still a couple of holdouts uh, across the world. And so one of these holdouts, uh, I we're ready to get into the next section, right? Oh, well, I, I would love to talk about get when they come back to the vengeful spirit as well. And like Cinderman, okay. uh, because I think it's an important section is particularly Cinderman's uh, lecture right. where they talk about, you know, there was that conversation of why couldn't you just leave us alone? And Cinderman gives uh Kirill Cinderman is another character. He is the chief iterator Uh, which the iterators are a body of people in the crusade. And these are functionally the propagandists of the crusade. Um, It's, and it's very 1984 ministry of truth. We are right because we are right. And if you think something different, we are still right. You are wrong. Um, And that's functionally what it, what it draws down to. Um, And we learn about the Imperial truth 
in in that lecture as well, which is functionally the driving line of thinking among the Imperium of Man, which is there are no gods, there is only science and reason. So as the Emperor launches off in the stars, he has basically abolished all religion from the from the human race. So as they're prosecuting this crusade, they're burning churches, burning books, um, preaching this secular truth of, of humanity's own ascension to the next phase of their existence, I suppose. And as Brandon said, this is all, all the propaganda of, of the, the Imperium. But as we're about to find out, maybe that's not quite the case. Yeah, so that we're about to find out is definitely not the case the, like the the imperial truth is laid out in the first s- section of this book and then within the next section it the cracks are already starting to form right uh it, it happens that fast uh it, and the 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 only other thing i think before we get into the next section we get some more close-up time with horus um loken is asked to take Serjanus's place in the Mournival. He and he's asked for this uh, to do this because he's such a straight up and down guy. He's not a glory hound. He's not. He doesn't really have his own agenda. He just wants to do his lord's bidding, and he's he's a, he's just a straight shooter. I think it's it's his friend Torgadden, who's also a member of the Mournival, always is like. Um, you're so straight up and down. You're so straight up and down. And that is why he is picked to be in the Mournival. Right. So we should go over the Mournival real quick, is that it's comprised of four veteran captains. The first captain, Ezekiel Abaddon, who's very much this firebrand, wrath and glory kind of guy, you know, all in the service of the War Master, will burn anyone down so that to, to claim his supremacy. And then there's uh, Captain... Little Horus Aximand, who looks just like Horus. He's, he's a miniature version of Horus himself. So they call him Little Horus. It's pretty cool. But he's kind of this uh, bitter, kind of taciturn, um, kind of hard to get close to kind of guy. And then the third one, probably my favorite, is Tarek Torgadden, who is, they describe him as a man of uh, stupid jokes and idiot tricks. A man right after my own heart. So... Uh, he's he's got some really funny lines. He makes fun of people. He even makes fun of Abaddon from time to time. And then Sejanus was always kind of the voice of reason in the Mournival. But now that he's gone, they have to replace him with somebody else who's willing to maybe kind of go against the grain to kind of suss out, is this the best course of action? Are we sure we're doing the right thing? So right out of the gate, Loken seems like the best choice. And really he is. So he's asked to join the Mournival. And he consults Kirill Sinderman about this and says, is this really the kind of thing I should be doing? And Sinderman tells him, you need to be a naysmith. You need to be able to say no to the War Master. Well, no one really says no to the War Master because he is the most charismatic man in the galaxy. But Loken has the guts to do it, so that's why he gets the job. Yeah, we also find out at this point, um, while Loken is questioning if he should be in the Mournival and he's being advised by Cinderman. We also find out that there's actually another Primarch who has asked for him to join the Mournival, uh, which is pretty unusual. Uh, and that is everybody's least favorite Primarch, Rogel Dorn. No, 
No. Maybe maybe just L- mine. Lor- Lorgar still exists. No, no I, 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 I gotta go for Rogel Dork there. Uh, well, you do have poor taste, Chaos Boy. <laughs> uh, so I, I am an Iron is... Warrior at heart. I will always no, be an Iron Warrior, no. which means any time a chance occurs to dunk on Imperial Fists, it will be taken. I would, I would take you seriously if you actually played 40k. So, moving on. So, Rogaldorn has advocated for this legionary's position to the one of the highest offices of the Luna Wolves. And Garviel takes it, and the story kind of progresses from there. Yeah, so we, we, we see this council of war with, uh, with the War Master, and this is the first time we get a real good look at Horus, and you get to see just why he was picked as War Master. And what you see is he's this incredibly just charismatic guy. Like the he just lights up the room when he's in it. He makes everybody feel good, and he can kind of get anybody to do what he wants, really. And this is where we also see the function of the Mornival is that the Mornival help him maintain this image. So basically, what the Mornival does is the War Master is always also trying to cultivate. He does have the title of war master but he's also trying to cultivate the air of a peacemaker not just this warmonger so the marvel's purpose is to kind of take the heat for some of these you know uglier decisions that the legion needs to make you know in the name of the war master so uh there's a point where they're discussing this this one holdout region of 6319 that hasn't surrendered yet, and the the regular human army is just having a bear of a time taking it on. So, you know, the the war master uh, Garviel steps up and he's like, "Well, obviously the legions need to hit it again." And the war master's like, "You would have me unleash the Luna Wolves again?" And Loken just says, "No, just send my company. We were the first in. We should be the last out." So it gives the war master this really good out of, "Oh, well, I don't need to unleash the whole legion and look like a total massacre monster." I can just send in, you know, my favorite boys and they'll make a nice quick job of it. Yeah, and he also gets the he gets what he wants without being the one to suggest it, which is a point that is made very clear and important. Um one more thing I think we should talk about before we move on to part 2 of this book, uh what what I consider part 2, which is the battle in the whisperheads. Um there's a, there's a scene in the Warmaster's private chambers where the Mortival is there, and they are talking to some of the captains from the Imperial Fists that are there with Rogel Dorn. Rogel Dorn, who is the, the Primarch of the Seventh Legion, the Imperial Fists. And they have just been recalled by the Emperor to Terra to fortify Terra against any potential attack, which they consider part of partially a great honor, but also, and in part, they're like, well, why are you pulling us off the front line? We have glory to, to win as well. But there's a conversation between Sigismund, who's the first captain of the of the Imperial Fists, and the the Mortival, and there's kind of an two conflicting ideologies among the Legion that we see. One is this crusade is going to end. Uh, we need to figure out what is our function after the fighting is done. And then there's another idea here, which is more what Sigismund outlies in this conversation which is we will never be done fighting 
we will once we complete this crusade we will then have to turn inward to maintain our holdings so the war will never end and so there's a kind of a back and forth conversation there and it's an interesting thought uh there's a scene on 6319 with a remembrancer who kind of it kind of plays out the same way and he ends up getting his ass kicked by a bunch of imperial army troopers because he's kind of bad mouthing the imperium a bit and they don't like it so we forgot to mention the remembrancers the remembrancers are civilians that have been dispersed to the crusading forces to document remember uh, catalog all the achievements of the great crusade so it's artists poets musicians uh you know all the artsy fartsy types that you know make this kind of thing memorable but they're not particularly well received with the legions because the legions are kind of a mind that oh these are just you know sycophants and you know lazy hangers on and camp followers they're just going to get in the way so it's been a little sour so when this uh this remembrancer gets out into this uh, conquered city and he drinks too much. He starts running his mouth to some uh, garrison troopers there and the troopers don't like what he has to say. So they damn near beat him to death. Yeah. And, and kind of the, the importance of that scene though, is it, it's kind of talking about the same, same thing we're talking about between the Imperial fists in this conversation and, and the Luna wolves. Um, and the, I think that we've kind of hit that point, but the other major thing that happens here is that Loken gets to meet Primarch Dorn, um, who had requested him to join the Mournival. Um, again, this is a very rare thing to, to win a Primarch's favor is highly sought after in the Legions. And the idea of having a Primarch's favor who's not your Primarch, who is from a different Legion, this is just damn near unheard of. So... We get to see this conversation between Dorn and uh, and Loken, and he kind of reiterates what what Kirill Sinderman had said to Loken, uh, just a little more directly, in that well, Abaddon is a glory hound, Aximand will just kind of go along, and so will Torgaden. You need to be the one to keep Horus honest, um, and and. It's kind of a, a profound conversation here because it just really cements to Loken, this is your role, this is what you have to do. Right. So, and, and again, like, Loken didn't go out looking for glory, so it was. it's especially shocking that he gains his favor without even looking for it. I think that's enough for the compliance of 6319. You want to get onto the Whisperheads? Yeah, we can uh, We can get onto the Whisperheads. I think um, it, we'll, we start with... Um, this section where the remembrancers have been kind of given an invitation to view what what space marines what legionis astartes look like getting ready for work and there's a few big players in this group um really one in particular cinderman is with the group but the 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 other big player is a remembrancer named uh euphrates kila Yes, thank you. Uh, and she's a photographer, functionally. And so it talks about she gets some great pictures of uh, the 10th Company loading um, and getting ready to go down to the surface. Uh, it even talks about like she's going to become incredibly famous for these pictures. Uh, but then they get the go-ahead that they are also going to be allowed to go down to the surface. So uh, there's, there's a pretty significant 
picture in that moment. And the getting this invitation, the the guides on this um, embarkation ceremony say, you know, you can't uh, you can't take pictures, you can't record video, or anything like that. But Euphrates, they're just taking pictures. And when she gets stopped, she says, "I'm a photographer. What did you expect me to do?" So it's kind of she kind of kicks in the door of I, I need to go against the grain. That way we can actually see what's going on in the Great Crusade, and that that kind of gets her in trouble down the line, I think. So the the Legion or sorry, Tenth Company makes Planetfall, and they are set to storm this fortress called the Whisperheads, and it turns out that the Whisperheads have this culture cultural significance to the people of sixty three nineteen. It is something of a seat of religion to them. Yeah, and as we're making this fall, um, the the Legionnaires start to notice that there's something going on with their Vox, which Vox, if for, for those who don't know, Vox is an actual thing. It's, it's voice-only transmission. It's a radio. Um, but they start hearing this, this whisper, almost, um, that they can't quite pin down and they can't trace, um, that says, uh, Samus is coming. Samus is the man next to you. Samus will gnaw your bones. Samus is here. So Garville's uh, Garville tells his comms tech, like, we need to clear comms, you need to clear this up. And it clears up just long enough for uh, Loken to catch all of this. And he's like, well, that's probably just a terror campaign meant to unnerve us. Joke's on you, Space Marines, no, no fear. So 10th Company makes landfall. They rendezvous with the army that's just been getting massacred trying to take this fortress. And uh, they, realistically, the Astartes have no trouble taking the fortress. But as they are uh, taking this mountain stronghold, they find all these little shrines. And they're not really sure what to make of it, because, as I said, the Imperium's totally uh, secular. So they're just like, eh, burn it down. Meanwhile, the Remembrancers are back at this nearby village, and they're kind of looking around, and they're they're looking through some local texts of what's going on here. And there's a moment where one of the remembrancers says, "Oh, Samus, he's just this local legend." Turns out one of the ancient emperors uh, did battle with some ancient devil and imprisoned him here on the mountain. And Euphrates Kiel is there and says, "Oh, well, I've been hearing that the whole time." And the this other remembrancer just says, "Oh, well, we've all been hearing it." She's like, "Yeah, but I'm not wearing a vox." Cuts back to the. Yeah, it's 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 she's talking to Cinderman at this point. Cinderman's the one who found out what Samus was. But yeah, it's you kind of get really unnerved right there, where she's just like, "I've been hearing that I'm I'm not wearing a comm bead. I I have no comms at all, but I've still been hearing this." And you're like, "Something's going on here." Right. That's when the that's when the other shoe kind of starts to drop for everybody. Now. The, uh, the overall compliance of this, or the conquering of this enemy fortress, goes fairly well, up until the very end. Well, while Garville and a couple other squads are mopping up, he gets a transmission from one of the squads that reached like, the deepest part of the fortress. And it's from this, uh, this veteran sergeant who... Xavier Jubal. Xavier Jubal, who is a little sour with uh, Loken, because Loken didn't give him... A, a certain promotion a couple weeks ago. So Xavier Jubal calls him and says, Garvey, you have to get down here. You have to found it. You have to, you have to see this. I found something. Garvey's like, well, well, what is it? Why can't you just tell me? And he says, I found Samus. Samus is here. So Garvey and a squad immediately make their way down there. And 
all of Jubal's squad are missing. He's a he's a veteran sergeant. He's got his own very famous squad, Hellbore Tactical Squad. Well, all, the rest of Hellbore are missing. And Loken's like, well, what's going on here? What are you doing? And after a little bit of dialogue, Jubal just loses his mind and starts killing other space marines. And up, up until this point, that has never happened before. The, the idea is totally absurd. Why would an Astartes ever fight another Astartes? But I imagine it's like this where I cannot move because this is just such a ludicrous idea to me that a, that a brother Astartes would turn on his own that I could not move. And as we find out, Samus really is the man beside you. So effectively, Jubal ends up killing almost an entire tactical squad. And in in a very vicious one-on-one duel with Loken, Loken, Loken is able to actually subdue and effectively kill Xavier Jubal. So no, he, he does kill him. That's important. That's an important detail. He, he kills him. He runs him. him straight through with a power sword. A power sword is a an energized blade that, you know, it's it's a lightsaber, but it's it's all sorts it, of other it, things too. It, it's a it's a physical yeah, sword. It, it disrupts molecules. It's a physical sword with a power field. So Loken kills him and almost loses his body over the edge, but he pulls him back up, and the remaining tactical marines are able to bind him up with climbing cable or bind this body up with climbing cable because they don't know what to make of the situation. So Loken is, is understandably shaken by this whole ordeal. So he calls for the voice of reason itself, Kirill Sinderman, because he's the prophet of secular truth. So Sinderman and a couple of the remembrancers show up and Sinderman's trying to talk through, talk Garviel through this, but on the way there, Sinderman and the... Garviel asks a very important question here. He asks, are there demons? Are there spirits? And... Yes. And uh, Sinderman is kind of like, well, no, there can't be. We live in a a scientific world. This this has to be something else. So he kind of starts to do a little brainstorming here. What could this possibly be? And he says, well, it could be some unknown form of biological weapon that we don't know about that that turned this man's mind against you. It could have been, you know, some, maybe some brutal form of psychic control or something like that. This clearly wasn't the option or the, the actions of a sane man. Yeah. And, and this is where we see that this probably wasn't a biological agent because at this point, Jubal, who is dead, was run through with a power blade, gets up, and starts attacking again, but doesn't, he is undergoing a physical change when he does so, and is doesn't just stand up. He breaks his bonds. He lets out this horrifying roar, and he he starts to expand and deform, and his his plate armor, his Astartes plate armor, is starting to pop off of him in very violent ways. Um, he throws Kirill Sinderman into uh, another waiting Astartes who's trying to open fire with his bolter. Um, there's there's a little bit of an exchange. I think Garviel gets you know batted into a wall, and there are a couple other remembrances. Yeah, and, and that's important too. Ste- is that in undergoing this change, first off, Space Marine armor doesn't just crack like it's made out of glass or ceramic or something. It is stronger than steel. So something that is putting enough pressure on this thing to crack it is a incredible force. And then on top of that, to toss 
these armored space marines who I correct me if I'm wrong, Warwick, I believe in our, they, they've said in some codexes or somewhere that like an armored space marine average is like two tons. Like they are heavy. I'm not sure on that, but they are certainly because uh, your average space marine is like two meters tall and he's wearing hundreds of pounds of plate armor, weapons, power packs, stuff like that. They're, they're not light. They're effectively a, a walking tank in this power armor and this, this deforming mutating unspeakable thing is tossing them around like ragdolls. So one of the remembrances that is there does a very curious thing. He steps forward and makes the sign of the Aquila where you cross your thumbs with your fingers outward, outward. So it looks like a double headed Eagle with its wings spread, which is the de facto symbol of the Imperium. And he says, be gone demon. And the demon, shockingly, just bites his head off. It doesn't do anything. There's no power <laughs> behind it. And this, you know, it, it horrifically kills this civilian in front of everybody. And it's running up on Euphrates Kila when the Astartes are, are finally able to draw their bolters on it and just annihilate this thing with world-rending force. And later on, it says that they shot it to pieces in a little teeny tiny bits, and they used a flamethrower to disintegrate everything else, leaving no trace of Xavier Jubal. Yes. And this is, as it is closing with Euphrates Kila, it is about to eat her. Um, and and a, an important part of this as well is that she was not in the room when the change happened. This thing got out of the room and was storming down a hall where Kila was. Um, so she never saw the change. And that's important because when she is brought back, she is told this was a wild animal that they had set that the, the defenders of the fortress had set loose. Um, nothing to see here. Don't misremember anything. Don't misremember anything. Um, this is not now, anything to, to remember, even worth reporting on. Now, remember that Euphrates is a photographer. So in the heat of the moment, it's curious what your reaction kind of is because she locked up. She spasmed, she froze with her camera in front of her, which we come back to. Yeah, we do. Um, but before we get there, though, there we, we go to we go back down to the village where Loken is now talking to Abaddon, first captain Abaddon. And he is asking, okay, who saw this? Who actually was a witness? And Loken's explaining it. He's like, I have never seen anything like this in my life. And Abaddon says, we are sweeping this under the rug. This will not be talked about. I will be speaking personally to all the witnesses to ensure that they realize that they didn't see anything. And we are, we are just, this, this didn't happen. This could undermine everything we've worked for. This has to go away. And this is where we're joined by Horus. And keep in mind, uh, I, I mentioned that first captain Abaddon is a little bit of a firebrand. He's got a little bit of a temper. He's, he's always willing to fly off the handle at the drop of a hat. So imagine a space Marine that might be a half a head taller than a normal space Marine who has the 
longest honor roll of everybody except for the dearly departed Sejanus and the Warmaster himself. So Abaddon is effectively the meanest guy in the room at any given time. And he's about to go talk to a handful of civilians and other space marines and say, you're going to shut up about this. We're never going to talk to this, talk about this again. So anyone who has a recollection of this is going to have a lot of reservations before, you know, ever wanting to talk about it again. Yeah, definitely. It is not something uh, actually drawing back to, I think it draws back to a part where we're on before the whisper heads in the command council. Uh, there's a, there's a, a guy there who has never seen a Primarch, um, and Horace walks out and this gentleman, or maybe I'm getting, maybe this is after, yeah, I am getting, I ahead, getting of ahead of myself. Yourself. You're, you're, but you're thinking of it, it, this yeah, isn't important to the, the further part of the story in so much as Horace says to this guy, uh, and we will get there. He, but he says, will you not bow? And the guy says, I can't, but he cannot move. But this, this is what it would be like to have Abaddon come talk to these, these civilians of like, this guy is so intimidating and he could kill you really at the snap of his fingers. So when he comes to you and says, you didn't see anything, you did not see anything. There's no arguing the point. No, not at all. But uh, and, uh, one, of, one of the earlier lines going back to how charismatic Horus can be or how intimidating, however you want to frame it, is somebody says to Loken, because uh, Loken hasn't, up until he joins the Mortable, hasn't had a whole lot of dealings with the Primarch. Somebody tells him, look at his feet. Because if you look at his eyes, you'll forget what you're going to say. Yeah, I believe that's Torgaddon. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so... Going back to to the cabin uh, in this conversation between Abaddon and uh, and Loken, Horus comes in and he's like, "Hey, Abaddon, go take a walk." Functionally, go get a cup of coffee. Yeah, exactly. And he sits down with Loken, and this is again where we get to see how charismatic Horus is. He sits down and. Imagine this 10-foot-tall superhuman larger than life sitting down with – again, this is another superhuman, but this is what you know we, we would be to a re, to an regular Astartes. So again, larger than life to an Astartes sitting down and comforting him and like paying attention and being really relaxed with him. But what he explains to him – so. Horace, Horace does something. He's not just, at this point in the book, he's not just a commander. He puts his hand on Garvio's shoulder and says, worry not, my son. I will, I will soothe all your fears or something like that. And, you know, he, he really, really does, you know, soothe Loken at this point, not as a commander, but as a genuine father figure, because that's really what a Primarch is to his legion. Yeah, absolutely. And he he takes the time though to to really calm him down, and he listens to to Loken and hears his telling of the events, and that's where we get this big revelation that the imperial truth maybe isn't so ironclad as we thought. Um, now they try to pass it off a bit here, but what we hear is that there are entities that exist in the warp. Now the warp we know is the interdimensional plane that is used for travel across great distances interstellar travel is functionally impossible without it 
But what Horus tells Loken is there are entities that exist in the warp that seek to corrupt and destroy. And the way he explains it is this is just like any other Xenos, but they exist on a different plane of existence. And what he says to them is there are places where the, the barrier between physical reality and the warp is thin. And this must be one of those places. You had a weapon of the warp unleashed on you. That That is what happened. Not everybody knows about these things and no nobody needs to know. And this is where we get a little bit of exposition about the Emperor himself, because Horus does does kind of allude to, he doesn't really know why the Emperor left the Great Crusade, but he has a pretty good idea that Horus went back to Terra to try and gain some kind of mastery over the warp itself. It is like, it's going to be his final, it's going to be his final conquest, his magnum opus of everything he has ever done to reunite humanity. And Horus is a little heartbroken like this because, you know, Horus is his favored son, his closest son, his number one, and the Emperor didn't tell him exactly what he's doing. So Horus is is kind of put out by this, and I think that, that kind of gets the foot in the door for what we're about to see. Yeah, um, I, I, I think you hit it perfectly there. That was one of the things I wanted to talk about was he says, you know, Loken asks him, what is he doing on Terra? Uh, what is the Emperor doing? And Horus replies, he didn't tell anyone. And then he kind of like introspectively is like, not even me. Like you can tell that he's wounded by this. He wants to know why he was left out of the loop. And, you know, with that, that conversation ends. And I think we can move on to the third part of the book. We are going to be way over the time we were originally we, shooting for. We said but, we were oh going to well. shoot for like 45 minutes on the, the book portion. And we're already at almost an hour. Oops. <laughs> but anyway. So. Yeah, the next the next part of the the story, which is the campaign on everybody's favorite planet, murder. Yeah, it's it's a it's a, the the prime vacation destination for anybody in power armor. So we actually cut to a new cast of characters. We start off with the a couple captains from the third legion of Stardust, the Emperor's Children. Now we have Captain Saul Tarvitz and his good buddy, Captain Lucius. And they they kind of represent the, I think uh, Saul Tarvitz talks about how the two of them uh, represent this bipolar nature of the Emperor's children. They're a very different legion compared to the Luna Wolves. Now, Saul Tarvitz is what you call a file officer. He is very by the book. He has no aspirations to greatness. He just wants to be the best damn legionary he can be by the book. Lucius, on the other hand, is this arrogant, cocky glory hound with the sword skills to back it up. He is probably the meanest man with a blade in the galaxy, save any of the Primarchs. Or Garviel so, Logan, but we'll get there. Oh, right. We'll get there. Now, murder turns out to be a heck of a time. Turns out the Emperor's children are there reacting to a distress call from the... Ninth Legion, the Blood uh, Angels. The Ninth Legion, the Blood Angels. So the Blood Angels are there prosecuting this campaign against a hostile Xenos race uh, that they've never encountered before. Xenos are aliens, by the way. And anything that doesn't really fit into the category of humid, uh, human, as in two arms, two legs, one head, a human soul, 
Bye bye. Later. You don't. You don't. You don't get a. Uh, you don't get a seat at the table. Oh, unless uh, unless you're super useful, say like a Jakaro. A Jakaro is an alien that can just make weapons out of nowhere. Uh, the it's weird how the the Imperium. Um, and, and this we're gonna get into this a bit in the book, but I, I think it's a really important point that the Imperium does not like aliens at all. Not at all. And they're they don't like people who deal with aliens, and that's going to be important later. Yeah, but it, if if it is alien, it dies, and that is the Imperium's policy. Unless they're super useful, and those are super rare. They are like the the the. Jacaro is the one I can think of. That's about it. <laughs> so anyway, um, they're prosecuting this campaign on this alien world against this uh, implacable foe called what they call the Megarachnid. Now the Megarachnid are these insectoid or arachnid type, uh, I would think arachnid type, alien that has four legs, four arms. They're these big armored bugs with these metallic shells and you don't know where the organic components of the, them begin and the metallic components end. So the blood angels, you know, they send in their first wave and they lose, uh, I think they lose contact. And then the overall commander of the compliance uh, force goes down himself and he's there for a couple of weeks, you know, dealing with the foe and he's sending back regular reports that, you know, the, the foe is pernicious, the foe is implacable, the foe is endless, this world is murder, and that's all we get. So the, the, you know, the guy is still in orbit on the human ships. You know, they send out a distress call asking for aid. And the first people on the scene are the Emperor's children. So Lord Commander Eidolon, who's another character we're going to get into later, you're going to love him. He's, he's great. I don't know what you're talking about. He's, anyway. he's, he's the everyman, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's perfect. Literally. So, um, the Emperor's children make landfall, and there's there's this great... As they are, they're dropping down into orbit, there's this big storm surges out of nowhere and scatters all of their drop pod ships, landers, everything. So, they're kind of fighting this war to reunite with one another through these, these big forests of these big white stalks, and there are these weird stone trees off in the distance, and... Uh, Tarvitz and Lucius kind of decide with the few, the handful of space marines they have, we need to go investigate one of these trees. And it's this very grueling campaign. The Megarachnid are killing them a piece at a time. They're running out of ammo. Their weapons are starting to run out of fuel or, or power. And, you know, just dealing with these incredible foes are losing their very edge. So eventually they, they make it into this clearing and one of the space marines finds just this little this little bobble shining in the dirt and they pick it up and it's a green lens from a Astartes helmet. And the troubling part about it is that it's a, it's a perfect lens. It's not shattered. It wasn't pried out. It's almost like whatever had it crushed the helmet around it and popped it out in a single piece. And they're kind of thinking that, well, Astartes armor is damn near unbreakable. Whatever had the force to do that is truly terrifying. And that's where we really start to see the scope of this enemy they're fighting. Well, moving on a little ways, uh, they come up on one of these trees to this horrifying event, and unfortunately they find the rest of the Blood Angels. They are impaled upon these spikes, being devoured by this alien foe. And this is where we, we also see that uh, the 
original single form of the mega arachnid that they had been encountering uh, among the tree stalks is not the only foe there's also a winged variant as well um lucius is actually picked up by one and about to be carried off when he's saved by saul tarvitz which saul tarvitz i'm i'm gonna geek out here for a second saul tarvitz is one of my favorite characters in this entire series he is just awesome he is just such a straight up and down good guy he is a good guy and he He, is a good guy among a bunch of not good guys he gets about the best one of the best character arcs in these in this this opening salvo of books so absolutely he uh i i think all the writers that handle him do a great job because dan abnett's not the only guy writing this series we're gonna move through several authors but everybody who handles tarvitz kind of gives him the same treatment and it's just it's chef's kiss it's great he's He's always likable. And and it's what it's so amazing about it because you see this with other characters that you'll fall in love with them with one author and you they'll be written by somebody else and you're like, this isn't even the same guy. But with Saul Tarvitz, they just do it right every time. Yep. So let's see, where were we? Uh, they make it to one of the murder trees. We had just gotten to the stone trees. They get to one of the murder trees and they they're not just the bodies of blood angels. There are army troopers that descended with them and worst of all there are other emperor's children a lot of their forces have been lost to this this terrible foe now tarvitz is pretty upset by this he he doesn't want to see his brothers lost to such ignominy so amongst his ragtag group they gather all the debt charges they can all the all the demolitions all the explosives whatever they can and they're fixing to go out in a blaze of glory by just annihilating this tree and killing whatever comes up next. So they uh, they light off their debt charges and destroy this tree. And th- the whole while they've been here, there's just been this persistent storm cover. And as soon as the tree gets destroyed, the storm breaks. And at that point, they've all been separated by this calm... Uh, comm frequency jamming, the comms come back online and they get word from their favorite Lord Eidolon. And so Eidolon and his his bigger group are able to, to reconnect with, with Tarvitz and Lucius. And he's Eidolon is pretty upset by the poor showing that the Emperor's children have given during this whole ordeal. He, he doesn't really feel like his troops are up to snuff or maybe he might be dealing with a little bit of guilt about leading them into this suicidal situation. Doubtful, yeah, but. and and I think it's it's important, you know, before we go any further, to really dig into who the emperor's children are. Um, this is this is a legion, and each legion has its own characteristics, but this legion in particular is a very proud legion, um, and and it's talked about. Um, Horus in particular talks about it about with with Eidolon in that it, they are very proud and borderline bordering on arrogance. Um, that was actually they, they are Abbott. pretty aloof. Yeah, it, it's a conversation with Horus. Oh, okay. Sorry, yeah. I was getting ahead. Of, I was, I was uh, getting ahead of myself. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, but um, so the, the idea that they have just dropped in and everything's gone to shit. Um, this is just for for a lot of the Emperor's children. This is like, this is not what we do at all. We we act, and, and we'll get into this when. when 
book five, Fulgrim, is all about the Emperor's children. We'll really get into this. But what they do is they say, we, we execute war flawlessly. That is how we conduct war. Um, so this idea that things have gone badly for them, they are like, no, this this is not how things work. Um, and Eidolon actually spends a lot of time dressing Darvitz down, like really chews him out. Um, and, and Lucius a bit as well, although Lucius has a little more favor. Um, right. But he, he's like, you wasted all your debt charges. Uh, that was a complete total waste. You need to go dig through those trees um, to get some relics from our brother legions and from our legion. Uh, basically, take this shit work while we're going to go hang yeah. out over here. Go, go rake sand in the desert, idiot. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So... Tarvitz, Lucius, and their squad mates kind of get tasked with this thankless job of sifting through rubble. And as that's happening, uh, they get waylaid by this, yeah, another group of megarachnids that are, they're coming in, but there's there are these different variants. They're like these big, um, these big like construction variants and these little labor variants. And they're, they're trying to rebuild this tree. And Tarvitz goes well, I'm not going to let them rebuild that. We're going to kill all of them. So they launch into this furious assault against them. Meanwhile, Eidolon's company is being assaulted as well. And there's kind of this back and forth between the guys there that's like, we have to get back to the Lord Commander. And Tarvitz just says, look, if they can't win without the sixth of us, they can't win. So Tarvitz is like, I'll be damned if they rebuild these trees. We're going to kill as many as they can, and we're going we're gonna to go down swinging. Uh, meanwhile, up in orbit, the Luna Wolves have appeared. They're on scene now. They're kind of taking stock of the situation, and they're getting the the readout of what happens. It basically what had happened before. Uh, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I think it's important that when the Luna Wolves show up in system, they're immediately greeted by a beacon that is sitting on the edge of the system, and it's playing functionally music, and nobody really knows what. But Horus is like. That's something weird. We need to figure that out. And, they, and that's going to be important. Basically, later. everybody up until this point has been like, it's untranslatable. We, we don't know. We don't know what it is. None of our translations are working. And Horus is like, we can do better than that. Stick everybody on it. We're going to figure this out. So yep. basically what the Luna Wolves learn when they get there is that the Blood Angels commander drip fed his force into this meat grinder. And then when the Emperor's children showed up, they did the same thing. And when Torgadon suggests that, well, we need to make Planetfall to see if anybody's left alive, Horus is like, there's no way I'm going to do that. I'm not going to make the same mistakes that everybody else did. We're just going to bomb this thing from orbit and call it a day. Well, they're kind of mulling this over for a couple of days. Meanwhile, the Emperor's children are fighting for their lives down there, but nobody knows it because they've got no comms from planet surface. Well, about that time, there's a break in the storm, and it's about the time that Tarvitz blew up the tree. So, uh, you know, deep range scans, Vox eventually picks up suit to suit transmissions. And at that point, Horus is like, Torgadon, you've got the spear tip, you know, go down to the surface, recover who you can, get out of there when you can. So Torgadon leads this heroic assault on the planet, right as Saul Tarvitz is about to be cut down by a group of Megarachnid. You know, Lucius is buried in a, in a pile of rubble, um, about to get his head chopped off. Torgadon comes down like the Wrath of God and saves all the Emperor's children. 
they they kind of break the back of this assault and they they gain entry to the planet they gain a solid foothold now this is where this is where there starts to be a little character conflict with some of the emperor's children and the lunar wolves because lord eidolon shows up very peevishly and demands to know who's in charge well Turgeddon doesn't like the sound of that he's a pretty good humored guy but you know i think he's got this you know he knows when someone's screwed up and they need to be put in their place. And that's exactly what he does. Because even though Torgaddon's a captain and Eidolon is a Lord commander, Torgaddon's just been given the authority of the war master. He is the war master's chosen instrument. And he says that in this situation. So Eidolon shows up and is pretty disrespectful. Yeah. Basically. I mean, the, the, the sum of this conversation is that Eidolon walks over to Torgaddon and says, who the fuck are you? And Torgaddon looks at him and goes, who the fuck are you? <laughs> right. So they, they have this really neat exchange. Um, I don't have it marked, but it's, it's one worth reading. And Torgaddon just dresses this guy down because he effectively lost about a third of his entire force that he landed there for no glory and for no success. And he says to Eidolon's to face, the war master thinks you've made some shit awful decision decisions here. And if it's up to him, your head is going to be on a pike. So, and importantly, he says, Oh, and by the way, he's right up there. Yeah. He's so here. Eidolon at this point doesn't know that the war master's here. And when he hears that, he's like, I fucked up. He doesn't, he, Eidolon will admit to nothing. He's far too proud of it. And his his pride has certainly taken quite a beating from this dressing down he's getting. And maybe that leads into a bit of the animosity we see down the line. Yeah. Well, essentially what, what happens from here, we kind of go into what I like to call montage on paper. Um, yes. But Sanguinius, who is the Primarch of the Blood Angels... Uh, he arrives uh, because, you know, it was his legion initially that sent out the distress call. So he arrives to to rescue his legion. Um, he links up with Horus, his brother. Um, the the interesting thing to note about Sanguinius is that he actually is a man with wings. He has like angel wings growing out of his back. Um, Literal angel. Yeah, he, he is re- referred to as the angel. Um, and he and Horus together begin this six-month campaign where they just clear the surface of murder and it's it's talking it's 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 spoken about it was glory is won all around lots of people are able to distinguish themselves even eidolon is like he's out of favor but he's kind of working his way back in because they realize like this guy screwed up but maybe he's not a complete idiot uh this is where we talked about earlier the conversation between Torgadon and, and uh, Horace, where Horace is like about to call up Fulgrim and be like, what the hell is going on with your Legion? This guy's a moron. How, how did, why did you promote such an incompetent idiot into your upper echelons? Exactly. So yeah. it's also worth noting that Horace and Sanguinius are said to have the, the, the most brotherly bond of all Primarchs. They're, they're two peas in a pod. They're best buddies. Everybody, you know, everybody knows that their bond is unbreakable. Nothing would ever come between them. So yeah. they have... Um, I, I will say, though, Sanguinius is kind of that way with almost all of them. He's like... Cons- among the Primarchs, he's like the one everybody likes. 
Yeah, everybody loves Sanguinius. He's he's just he's everybody's favorite dude. Yeah. So the boys go on their little uh, conquering campaign. They haven't really hung out since Ulanor. So they, they're really enjoying their time together as brothers do when they get a you know go do the things that they love, which is murdering bugs, I guess. You know, they're they're there with giant uh, magnifying glasses burning megarachnids in the sun. It's great. The only good bug is, is a, a dead, dead bug. bug. <laughs> I'm doing my part. So I'm doing my part too. So they're having a good old time when out of nowhere distress beacons start uh, sounding from the fleet, more ships have come into orbit of a make and model that they do not recognize. They don't fit any Imperial logs at all. So everybody picks up sticks, got to go back to the ships. And as they're getting there, they receive a single transmission in this melodic tone. Musical. Where have we heard that before? What have you done? Did you not see the warnings? And that brings us to part four and the final part of Horus Rising. Um, where we encounter and have just encountered the Interrex, um, which is a species, a subspecies of human that has been cut off from the rest of humanity for a long time. Uh, they are described as being very tall and lanky, and they they speak in this musical tone. Um, and what what is the music called it's again, called them so they've uh, in all of their transactions they have this this subtone of music called the meterge and so they they have these meterge players these instrument uh wielding men uh accompanying them everywhere and this music once you grow used to it it has this like translation effect on everything you say so it makes communication between different races very easy but for whatever reason these beacons that the Interex left around murder for whatever reason they weren't translatable by just regular imperial humans and i don't think we ever really get any exposition on why that is but as soon as the Interex show up they they dig into it a little bit of the the Interex can 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 commune just through the meturge they don't actually need words to talk okay i I must have missed so when they describe the meturge it's it's functionally language perfected mathematically is the way it's described so they are speaking what they see as archaic uh language when they when they're actually dealing with the imperials um but they keep the meturge and the meturge well it, it does work as well to clarify things that you hear uh, but it also is its own language right so they Everybody doesn't open fire right away. They're actually fairly diplomatic about it. And what it turns out to be is this really, really bad misunderstanding, you know, misunderstanding of what murder really is. And as it turns out, it's basically a big nature reserve for this alien race that the Interex had conquered, but they have this moral qualm about uh, genocide. So instead of just annihilating this alien race like the Imperium of Man do, they take away their capability of space flight and they put them on this nature reserve so they have their own planet, the race doesn't go extinct, and they're isolated so they're not a threat to anybody. I wonder if they could have just been left alone. Yeah, 
and it's kind of a thing that we see with with the interexes you know they 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 believe that they live by a moral compass um that uh you know we don't have the right to exterminate a race from existence whereas the you know the duality of that of the imperium being like we're very comfortable with genocide <laughs> right because uh, any, but any, it's it's a difference of perspective though right is that because any potential much, any potential threat is worth destroying yeah and and pretty much every xenos species they have ever the imperium has ever come across has been hostile and that's made very clear up to this point of we haven't really met ones that we could have dealings with and it's been decreed by the emperor of mankind that we don't have relations with xenos right and this is where we see horus kind of wrestling with his role as war master he's he's not really sure how to deal with the interrex right away because they're human but they're oddly separate from humanity as we know it because they they exist by this different code of ethics. They've got this very bizarre um, evol- evolutionary path that they've taken. Um, they're almost more alien than than they are human. So Horus is like, yeah, and, you know, and they're very happy to engage with aliens uh, of so, any kind. They actually have a race of aliens that are functionally indentured servants to them that they had bested in battle. So the they, had, they, they had absorbed this Kinnebrack empire into their own after they had done war because the, the Kinnebrack were kind of waning as a species. And um, they decided to have this mutual agreement that, you know, we'll be citizens in your empire uh, and we won't cause any trouble for you. We'll help you out. We'll give you some of our technology. And um, we get into a little bit of that, a little bit of that later, but Horus is, is dealing with like, you know, do I make peace with these humans, uh, humans as I quote, um, or, you know, do I make war upon our lost brethren? And, you know, there's, you know, all of his advisors are going back and forth. You know, Abaddon and Aximand want to go to war because they're not human enough. Um, Loken, I think, is kind of, Loken and Torgadon, I think, are fairly neutral. And, you know, all the other advisors are, you know, we're not really sure what to do. I mean, they're humans. We we, we want to embrace them as, as our long-lost cousins. And as we find out later, the, the Interix are pretty leery of the whole thing, but maybe they kind of feel the same way, but they're not sure what to make of humanity yet because the man leading them is literally called the War Master. You know, when someone like that shows up on your doorstep, what are you supposed to think? It's like, hey, this guy's here obviously to make friends, not kill us in our sleep. Yeah, and, and, and it talks about that when, when they, the Interrex come aboard onto the uh, the deck or onto the embarkation deck of the Vengeful Spirit, which is Horus's flagship. Um, if you didn't know that already, you haven't read the book mm-hmm. and shame on you. Um, uh, anyway, um, pause it and come but back. yes, yes. <laughs> pause it right now and welcome back. Very good. <laughs> um, the, the interacts, they, they see the Astartes and they're like, oh, this is a military fleet. And Horace like, well, we have a military component. And they're like, uh, this doesn't look like just a component. So this is this is another really clear example of the War Master's uh, diplomatic ability. He he doesn't outright say, "Oh yeah, we we're on a murder spree across the galaxy." He's like, "Well, we have a military component because the galaxy is a very dangerous place, as you can obviously see." Because he's not dumb, he can see that the Interact ships are 
bristling with guns. They're very powerful. They're twice as long as their biggest ship. Uh, they they look like a very intimidating foe as well. So, you know, he kind of plays plays their own strengths against them in this scene. And it kind of gives the Interrex pause that, okay, maybe these guys aren't the barbarians that we expect them. Yeah, and I think that it's, it's important as well. We talk about a lot of Horus's advisors, particularly Aximand and Abaddon, are ready to go to war right now. Whereas Torgadon is like, I don't really know. They don't really seem human to me. And Loken is like, whatever you say, boss, is what I will do. This is actually kind of one of the weaker parts for Loken, in my opinion. Because, you know, he, he's a straight up and down guy. And he's specifically not brought in to be a yes man. And right here, he is just like, yeah, whatever you say, dad. He he's yeah, it, it really does seem like he's pretty indecisive in this in this point. But I don't know. I think he he is also wrestling with the um, kind of wrestling with the morality of should we have been killing a bunch of aliens that were not leaving their own world? I mean, r- realistically, what use was murder to us? We can get you know, natural, we can get minerals and metals from any asteroid or any other planet. Why do we need to go, you know, sacrifice thousands of lives to, for another resource point, right? Yeah, and and he's also still wrestling. It, it, it talks about there's a pretty big excursion um, as well. He is still wrestling with what happened in the Whisperheads with Jubal. Um, we talk, he talks with Cinderman. Um, there's a pretty big scene where he talks with Keela after he realizes, um, am I getting ahead of myself again? I'll, I'll fill you is in that... there. So, so a part that we missed is that, uh, Loken, uh, so Keela made a, uh, a video or a, sorry, a data file for Loken of all the pictures she took on the embarkation deck of his first deployment after his, uh, appointment to the Mornival. So it's a very dramatic scene. So, there are these amazing photos of the, the embarkation ceremony, but she, she gives that to Loken. But as he's looking through them one day, just on a whim, he notices that there's a sub file in this data pad that she's given him. And when he opens it up, it's this picture of the beast from the Whisperheads. But when you resolve the resolution, you can see trapped inside this beast is Xavier Jubal. And it's this earth-shattering realization that that wasn't a wild beast and she knows it well Loken Loken goes to talk to her and she you know it's very obvious that he's been removed he's been on duties he hasn't seen her for quite some time she uh she talks to him and says look I know that 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 was not the action of a wild beast I know that was a man and I know you're lying to me about something and I think I know what it is I'll never say it Delete those pictures, throw them away. I'll never look at them again. But there's there's something bothering her about this whole ordeal. Yeah, and and she she mentions she says you know I sent that to you, and I was in a very dark place, and like I had intended to take my own life, but I I found the strength to get through this. And she keeps saying the emperor protects us all. You know the emperor sent you, his Astartes. And he watches. He watches over all of mankind. And Loken's like, yeah, I guess, yeah, sure, totally. Um, but she's like, I, I made it through that dark place. I'm fine. I don't want to know what that actually was. Please do not tell me. 
I I don't think I could handle it if I found out the truth. I don't want to know. So after, you know, Loken kind of has a little trouble reconciling this because he's he's really questioning what Horus and Abaddon told him. He's wrestling with that, so he moves on. But after he leaves, we get a scene with Keela alone where she pulls out a little chapbook, poorly printed, mass-produced, and it's called the Lectitio Divinitatis. So it turns out that she is finding faith. Faith in what, you might ask? Well, there's this faction of the Imperium that believe that the Emperor's not just you know, a very powerful man. He is a literal god sent to shepherd humanity. So the Lectitio Divinitatis you know, proclaims him god, and that humanity should worship him as a whole. And so Euphrates has found that the emperor does protect in, in many different ways. And she's found this, this amazing faith uh, that, that guards her. And so she's been praying to him this whole time, but she's not telling anyone. Yeah, and this is like a very frowned upon in mainstream imperial society thing. Now, you can kind of understand where these people are coming from. We describe the emperor. He's 10 feet tall. He's massively psychic got a a literal shining halo yeah and we also didn't mention by the way he's immortal so it it wouldn't be that hard of a leap for a regular human like you or me to be like this is a god this is what a god looks like um but the emperor himself is like i am not a god i am just a man which i always chuckle at when they're like the emperor is just a man and i'm like okay yeah. like okay yeah yeah right. yeah i'm just a man you're a dude you're a dude that's a man like yeah. andre the giant was just a man you are twice as tall as him and you shine like a light bulb yes exactly but it, it's an important little scene that we get here though to understand that like the lecticio divinitatis exists in the seat of of the war master's power, his own ship, this supposedly illegal cult and, is and there. The, the war master's fleet is supposed to be this beacon of this beacon of secular truth, but the crew is it, because Euphrates, it turns out she got this chapbook from another crewmate. So she, uh, right. As, as brand said, it's this very disturbing, well, not disturbing, but this very unusual thing that, Maybe the secular truth doesn't have the the stranglehold on humanity that everyone thinks it does. Faith is starting to find a foothold in in everyone. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think we're good to jump past that scene, though, right? right? So it, yeah, we need it, a little backtrack. It's, it's going to come there. up a lot. This this story with Keila, not over. Uh, but we can we can go ahead and jump forward from here, which is the the fleet. Uh, they they conduct some some diplomacy between uh horus decides we're not going to go to war we're going to attempt a diplomatic end to the, to this we're going to open up ch- talks um and they decide we're going to go back to the nearest outpost world of the of the interrex and we're going to engage with functionally the planetary governor there so it's it's important to notice that um the expedition fleets have kind of uh grown stagnant here for a minute. They've been in these negotiation talks for several weeks with the Interrex, not really making any headway before that. And so uh, several different elements of the crusade have time to kind of catch up to the war master. You know, he has been out on the fringes of space, you know, doing the dirty work. So 
the the bean counters and you know other uh, expeditionary fleets have come to kind of parlay with the war master. So there are um, you know uh, tax collectors show up trying to to figure out how to tithe these new planets, you know, to start supporting you know uh, the rest of the Imperium. So the war, the war master is trying to deal with that. On top of that, other Legion forces have started to show up and ask for aid. So there's like an Alpha Legion element. They're the 20th Legion that's asking for help. But the War Master's kind of leery on that because it's a very long, drawn-out campaign. One of the main characters, a very important character that shows up, is Erebus of the uh, Wordbearers. Now, uh, Chaplain uh, Erebus... Real, real quick, real quick. before Another one, we talked about Alpharius that shows up, um, which... They talk about a bit. Um, one, I'm, I'm going to call this out because I'm, you know, you know what Legion I play in Heresy, but um, a, an emissary from the Lion shows up. The Lion being the Primarch of the First Legion, who felt very slighted because he was the Emperor's first son to not be picked as War Master. So him having this emissary come out and ask for functionally the War Master's attention and to, to get some aid. Horace actually spent some time on that, and it's like this is a big deal. This opportunity might not to repair to repair this relationship might not come up again. So, the so point is, there's there's a lot of competing things for for his attention. The War Master really does feel like he's being pulled in several different directions, and especially because you know he feels this thawing between him and some of the other Primarchs that might have been pretty bitter at his appointment. So yeah. Uh, and, and that is at the point where we show up with everybody's favorite shit poster, Erebus, and the first chaplain of the word bearers. You can tell he's one of my favorites. Oh, yeah, he's great. Um, everybody loves him. He definitely didn't burn half the galaxy. Um, so We're getting ahead of ourselves. That's a few episodes down the road. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there eventually. So Erebus shows up to, you know, maybe kind of help out. He he originally showed up to ask for aid on a campaign, but he saw that the War Master's plate was full, so he's like, well, I'm maybe going to ignore my own responsibilities to try and help out the War Master, which seems great because, you know, the War Master really needs it at this point. He, you know, he could definitely use another, um, what would you call it, delegate to help out with these negotiations with the Interrex. So moving on down the road, you know, the War Master kind of decides, well... As much as it pains me, I'm going to send my brother Sanguinius, who kind of volunteered for the burden, to go kind of waylay the tax collectors and get them off his back for a little bit. So that buys him quite a bit of breathing room to deal with the Interrex, because the Interrex, as it turns out, have this um, several system-spanning uh, empire that would be a real bear to try and wrestle in the compliance. So the War Master really wants to take di- you know diplomacy as far as it can before resorting to any kind of war, which you know is pretty admirable, the War Master need only snap his fingers and get everybody on the scene to just completely level this empire. But it would put them out on several other fronts. Anyway, would, would you say would you say Warwick that he could have called for a muster? There could have been a muster. Yes, a muster. That's a, jo- say, that's a joke again for another episode. We'll get there eventually. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. So, you know, we we get set up on this scene on this outpost world of the Interrex where they are, they're progressing a little more with talks, but they're not really getting anywhere. 
and the Warmaster's maybe getting a little frustrated. His entourage is certainly getting frustrated. Abaddon is just railing against these Xenos-loving weirdos. Like, why are we talking to these guys? They've got aliens in their mix. We need to just level them and be done with it. So he and uh, Abaddon and Horus almost have it out, and Horus almost rips Abaddon's head off. He's so furious at his defiance. Anyway, they calm down and get to the the negotiations on this alien or on this Interex world, and they the Interex let them into this place called the Hall of Devices, which functions as a kind of a museum and armory of weapons, and they're being showed like just these bizarre things, these devices of the Kinebrak, which are the the this indentured alien race that we mentioned as part of the Interex. And it turns out the Interrex had these very complex, sophisticated, completely alien ways of uh, forging weaponry. And this delegation is there taking these tours, and Cinnamon is there as well. And, you know, he's pointing out, like, these are just boxes and and knives and swords. Surely they can just be regular weapons. You know, why, why do you need to lock them up? They're not, you know, they're not like nuclear warheads. They're not like virus bombs. And the, um, the guide is kind of like, oh, no, these are sentient weapons. You know, when they're set upon a certain task, they become the very nemesis of, you know, the, the person they're set against. And they're like, Cinnamon's like, do you mean something like a curse? And they're shocked to find out that the interrects take them completely serious. They're like, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, you can say it like that. That's exactly what it is. And since, yeah, in, in particular, they, they focus – this conversation takes place um, in this hall, but they're kind of focused on one particular set of weapons, and it's these – basically, they look like knives, uh, and they're called anathanes, and that's what they're talking about with this sentient weapon. Um, and, and they're really surprised because, the, the yeah, like you said, the, the interacts are just like, yeah, I guess you could call it a curse. Yeah, and they're, they um, they say that the Kinebrak have never been able to explain it to them in a way that made sense. And the the use and the forging of them is strictly outlawed. There are no exceptions. The ones that they have now are on display for the rest of the time. They will never be used for anything again. So that's a little bit of foreshadowing. I wonder if that comes up later. So the... Um, the delegations kind of trade places. When the Interrex first show up, um, they're they're very diplomatic. They're all business, and the the human empire of man is is all uh, is all hardware and warfare. So as time goes on, the Interrex kind of display their warlike side to try and seem more like humans. And the War Master doesn't show up in plate armor anymore. He's there in robes and furs. You know, very much the the diplomat of the times. So they're at dinner one night. Um, the War Master is there with his honor guard. I think Tarek Torgadden is his honor guard that night at dinner. And Loken gets the honor of being on patrol that night. And he's walking through these you know, various halls of the building that they're having dinner in. It's, it's this, um, this nobleman's palace, basically. And... Loken kind of—he's walking through this little gallery in uh, of different pieces, and he finds this curious book. Um, I, we should mention that earlier on in the book, he kind of goes to Cinderman for you know maybe a little bit of diversion, and Cinderman recommends him some, you know, some gory tales of the past. And one of the books is the Chronicles of Ursh, 
that he recommends to Loken and Loken starts reading. And it's kind of these past conquests of, of books. And, you know, Loken kind of gets hung up on this one passage. that's basically like they became of, or they became as demons and turned upon their fellow man. And he's like, that's really disturbing considering what we've just been dealing with. So this book that he finds in the Interrex hall, it's something like a tale, uh, a cautionary tale of, of devils and spirits or something of the like. And he starts to flick through it and he finds a curious passage. It's being translated to him, I think through a, a hollow field that, you know, they, some, some could be as demons and turn against their brothers. And about that time, this Interrex officer comes up on him and uh, he starts to ask about it. He's like, yeah, this is a, um, what does he call it? A recollection or something. Uh, and it's, it refers to, a, a piece of shared culture that they can trace back to, you know, where the, the two, these two factions kind of started to diverge, but it's something that links their shared heritage. And Loken's like, well, you know, surely this is just a work of fiction. And this officer's like, well, what do you mean? And Loken says, well, you know, demons and angels and spirits, they don't exist. That's just, you know, something that, that we use to, it, that our primitive selves use to kind of comfort ourselves in, in the, the great unknown of, of the, the terror of space. And the entrance goes, oh, so you don't know. You don't know about chaos. And Loken is just like, what do you mean? You, we know what chaos is, but you, you speak of it as more of a, an entity or a thing. And this officer kind of has this profound moment. He's like, we... We, we didn't know what to make of you for the longest time, but, but now I see it in you, this, this great naivete that, that you're, you're unaware of the true horror of the galaxy, more or less. Yeah, and Loken is just sitting there like, what are you talking about? But this, this Interrex uh, captain, he's just overjoyed. He's like, this, is, this truth is going to bring us completely together. All this is going to bring the the diplomat the the diplomacy to a whole other level. We're going to be able to embrace his brothers, all of this stuff. Like we were just afraid that, you know, with how warlike you guys were, that you had been infiltrated by chaos, and we had been. That's why we had been keeping you at arm's length. Now we know you're not. This is this is great, and right at that moment, he gets a transmission on his comm bead, and. Loken's like, what's what's going on? And he goes, ah, you guys played your hand too early. We knew we knew there was something wrong with you. And Loken's like, what are you talking about? I don't understand any of this. And he goes, the Hall of Devices is burning. The curator's dead. Um, I'm gonna need you to surrender all your weapons to me. And to uh, to which point Loken is like, hell no. I am not surrendering my weapons because he's under strict orders. His his first priority in everything is the security of the Warmaster, and now this this alien officer is demanding he uh, give up his his arms and just surrender to him. Well, that's not going to happen. So they end up dueling it out. Um, Loken kind of holds back in the beginning, but it reaches this kind of critical mass where Loken just loses his mind on this guy you know, disables him, cuts his arm off and leaves him to bleed out. But, you know, he does, he does come up on some other guards and says, I, I have, uh, what does he say? 
I have no wish to see him die, die, bind his arm quickly before he bleeds out. So he's still of a mind that maybe peace can be salvaged. So he's being jammed this whole time. He's completely cut off from everyone, but eventually he's able to kind of reconnect with most of his squad. They, they get back together. They're able to secure the war master, but the war master is just like, I will not leave. I have to sort this out. You know, the, the rest of his honor guard are like, no, we have to get you out of here. We have to evacuate right now. But, uh, you know, Horace is being stubborn. He's like, no, di- diplomacy has to go as far as it can. And they don't know why this is happening. They just started getting, in the middle of dinner, they start getting accused of of burning down the Hall of Devices, being murderers, being, you know, charlatans and deceivers. And they have no idea why. It's just, It comes out of nowhere. Yeah, and uh, so what they do, they end up doing is, you know, Torque Adam keeps trying to convince Horace to, to leave. And Horace is like, I'm in charge here. You will do what I say. Take me to the Hall of Devices, which is where, you know, they take a lot of casualties along the way, but they see, yes, it is burning. Uh, there's some interex people there of like, you know, haven't you done enough to us? And they're like, we haven't done this. This was not us. You're accusing us falsely. And this battle ensues uh, because Horus realizes, okay, diplomacy has failed. This is this is not going to be salvaged, um, and they have to fight their way out. So a- Abaddon and Axaman eventually fight their way to Horus and Loken and Torgaddon. Um, and there's a really important part here, uh, and a part that I really love of the book. There's a there's a portion. You know, a small portion of the book before this point where Loken is talking about how will I die? You know, what does that look like? And he says, I hope to die, you know, fighting alongside the war master in glorious combat. And he is fighting here. And you can tell in a couple of different spots that maybe this story is not being told in the present. It's the narrator is speaking on past events. And this is one of the spots right here where he says, you know, I, I wish that the galaxy would have remembered Horus like this, like I remember him. Um, and, and again, it speaks to the great tragedy that is about to come. And it is a tragedy, right? Yeah. It's not because, it's the, you know, there's no other way to put it. This this book does a great job of painting the War Master as a likable figure. He's he's not the monster yet that, that 40K remembers him as. So... Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's almost, he's superhuman, but he's almost human is, is kind of the thing. So the, you know, some of the last passages are basically Loken reminiscing about how I wish that's how we all remembered him, but it's sadly, it's not. And I think, um, there's, there's a bit of a spoiler in this book. I, I kind of wish that, um, that they maybe hadn't tipped their hand. Are we going to spoil what happened at the Hall of Devices? You want to hang on to it. You talking about uh, the very last part of the book? Yeah. So I think, I mean, folks, audience, you guys should have read the book by now. Okay. You should, you should know. I wasn't sure. Um, but I, I, before we get to the end, we have actually, I just realized we are so far over time. It's, we were going to go 45 oh, well. minutes. We are an hour and 40. In. Yes. Um, the we didn't talk about the lodge we didn't talk about the warrior lodges at all yeah we, we got we, we need to talk about the book. lodge 
That's in it. So important. Right. So so important. The, the warrior lodges are this kind of subculture of the legion that it's it's kind of secretive. There, the the emperor has technically uh, outlawed them. He's forbidden them. There should only be the chain of command. But the warrior lodges kind of subvert that. Because it well, quick quick point. I, I don't think it says he forbidden them. No, he it did. It says he frowns upon them. I thought he forbid them. He says I don't like them. Oh. Which is as good as forbidden yeah, them basically. To, to some. If, if the Emperor yeah. says I'm not a fan of that, you probably just shouldn't do it. It's exactly it's de facto outlawed. Anyway, um the the Warrior Lodges kind of subvert the chain of command in a way that Officers that are part of the lodge and standard line troopers that are part of the lodge meet in their off time as equals. They they tell war stories. Torgaden tells bad jokes. They they drink. They hang out. They have a good time. And uh, Garfield Loken is so straight up and down. He really frowns upon this. Again, to him, there should only be the chain of command. Um, and it's there's also kind of this uh, this. Um, uh, this kind of rumor that the lodges are kind of a, a foothold for the Lectitio Divinitatis that everybody kind of knows about and frowns upon, you know, nobody wants to talk about it, but it's, it's kind of thought to be this cult like activity. And so Loken has already said to his entire company, you know, if anybody is part of this, you have no place in my company. If anyone has information on it, you need to tell me right now. But it turns out that some of his company have kind of been hiding that from him. Yeah, um, exactly. And one of the things we see is that as uh, Loken is cleaning out Jubal's uh, bunk after the Whisperheads, he finds this metal um, that turns out to be a Lodge metal. And he, again, is very against the Lodge, but he's come to by Little Horus Aximan. And Horus says i want you to come to the lodge you need to see what it's about and if you don't like it no hard feelings um but you can't be exposing the lodge and we find out that even the war master knows about the lodge and he's okay with it so they go and it really is it turns out you know there's a little bit of ritual there um you know they when they're asked to talk about the lodge outside of the lodge I cannot say. Um, but what we find out is that really it's it's just a fraternity of of brothers. And I as as someone who was in the military, you know, I this is like something that I, I think is like really important to kind of building that bond with people that you're going into combat with. But I also know when it goes outside of the chain of command it can be okay, but it can also get corrupted fast. Slippery slope. And yeah, it, and that that's what may happen here. Anyway, Loken goes to the lodge. He sees, okay, I'm going to tolerate this because you've asked me to, but I'm not going to participate. Um, and that's that's about where, where the lodge is left for for this book. Um, so if you want to go ahead and move to, to the end of the book, I think we can talk about that a bit. So one of the final scenes is, is it goes something like down in the deepest depths of the ship in the, the lowest bilges where only the lowliest crewmen seldom go 
and there there's no surveillance. First Chaplain Erebus of the Word Bearers lifts the shining anatheme up to his eyes and looks at it. And that that's the scene. So we know that Erebus has stolen the anatheme. He is the reason that the Hall of Devices burned. He is the kind of cornerstone of this conflict with the Interrex now. You know, he's the reason that uh, that humanity has been, you know, exposed to this conflict now. And that is a pretty big linchpin of every single event to come thus far or uh, to come, I should say. Yeah, this is this is the thing. Events have been set in motion, which are about to descend the galaxy into flames um, in a way that has never been seen ever before. Um, and that's it. That's Horus Rising. So, uh, Warwick, overall impressions, and give me a couple of spots that you really liked. Um, you uh, you did a great job of keeping me in pace. I was getting ahead of myself several times, but um, there there's some really good wordplay that Dan Abnett does, and a lot of it leads into foreshadowing. It's like when they are uh, storming the Emperor's Palace in the very beginning, like in the in the first couple of pages. Loken looks down at uh, First Captain Abaddon leading the Justarin or Justarin into the palace, and the the Luna Wolf's armor is pearl white trimmed in black, but the Justarin are black as night, almost as they're though they're part of some kind of Black Legion, and that's quite a bit of foreshadowing for another ten thousand years. So little, yeah, little I, I like love that. the little things like that. Yeah. Um, one, one of the remembrancers, uh, the poet uh, Ignis Carcassi, who gets his ass kicked by the uh, um, the Imperial troopers in that city. Like he's a man right after my own heart. He drinks too much and he runs his mouth. It me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I think if I if I had to pick it first off, this is it's a 54 book series here, people. And it starts off on a real high note. Yeah, it's this is, I I this is not the high watermark in my opinion, but it's up there with some of the best so in this series. It's easily one of my favorites, and I think Dan Abnett was the right guy for the job because he doesn't paint one big set piece; he paints like three. So he describes the the phototropic towers of sixty three nineteen being this this vast city and then he describes this desolate merciless wasteland of murder and then he describes this completely foreign alien cu- culture of the interrex so he gives us just these three awesome puzzle pieces to start off with and it's just one amazing scene after another so i think he was really the right guy for the job and he does like we you know we talked about the characterization a little bit of these characters and he makes a lot of people really likable um you know, uh, there's some really good character v- development between Loken and Little Horus. Um, just like, you know, starting off, Little Horus is kind of bitter. He's icy. But, you know, he thaws relatively quickly, and he be- he quickly becomes one of Loken's best friends. Yeah. Yeah. And I think my... That's one of my favorites as well, is the brotherhood that you see develop, even with Abaddon as well. Um, you kind of realize that, like, yeah, he's this, he is very much a hard-nosed dude, but he all, there's another side to him just when he's among his friends that not most people get to see. Um, if I had to pick a favorite part, 
Um, I think I think my favorite part is honestly when Torgaddon is dressing down Eidolon. Oh, it is um, so good because because Tarvitz is standing there as well. Like, and and Tarvitz is such a good like he's such a good guy that you know uh Torgadden's like oh you destroyed the trees and that that was what we were able to get through and Eidolon was like yep we destroyed the trees that was me and one of Tor one of Torgat or one of Salt Harvitz's guys bull was like no it was captain it was captain Tarvitz who came up with that idea and he was chastised by Eidolon and and Torgadden just says Torgadden immediately was like this is bullshit and you're an idiot Eidolon yeah well Torgadden basically says well clearly Eidolon knows a good idea when someone else has one yeah that's one of my favorite <laughs> there, lines there's a really good line where uh, Torgadden's talking about how uh, the Luna Wolves the relationship between the Luna Wolves and the Emperor's children and he's like you guys were never like this in the early days um why is Eidolon the way he is? You know, there is no purity and pride. There is no virtue in arrogance and overconfidence. And I think it's just a really good way of summing up, like maybe the Emperor's children are kind of starting to grow beyond their means and it might be time to put them back in their place, but it doesn't really come to that. Um, we'll, we'll get more on that, you know, in the next couple of books. Uh, I'm really looking forward to getting into that. Yeah. And we we give the emperor's children a hard time, especially in these first three books. But I think once you get to book five, Fulgrim, which is all about the emperor's children, you really get to understand who they are and why they do the things that they do. Yeah. And that's another thing I love about the series as a whole, is because it's such a big series, we're gonna get that with basically every legion. We get a good in-depth look and there's something to like about every legion except the imperial fists those guys are the worst no, yeah. the word the word bears still exist uh, he, yeah like, their their primarch has no accomplishments to his name he wrote a book that was it all their other accomplishments all their operations were literally planned by everyone else uh, hey, i'll give you i'll give you something you like about the word about the word bears Argletal. Everybody likes Argletal. You got me That's there. That's because is a bro. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's yeah. the dude. All right, we are getting way off topic here, so let's let's go ahead and wrap it up here. Um, thank thanks everybody for joining us again. You know, it, it means a lot to us that you you give us a listen and just listen to two nerds rant about a science fiction book. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, you know, if if you like what you heard, give us a give us a like or subscribe or however it works on apple podcasts leave us a five-star review um we appreciate you being here i was actually just talking to my wife before we recorded this episode and she was nice enough to inform me that she has not listened to the podcast mm -hmm. at all so <laughs> love you dear uh, but those of you who are here we really appreciate you um uh, but i think we're gonna wrap it up here um, and we will see you guys on the next episode of Legion Cast. Well, uh, I want to plug our social media before we go. Uh, oh my gosh, look us, yes. look us up on Twitter at LegionCast18, at Instagram at LegionCast18, and shoot us an email at LegionCast18 at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. Uh, feel free to reach out. You know, if, Definitely give us some feedback where, you know, I'm sure that some of you guys are going to be like, I can't believe it's another two-hour lore podcast. Uh, we 
only expect to go 45 minutes, but it, it really is a crunchy subject worth talking about. So thanks again for joining us. You know, we definitely want to hear from you guys. And this is Legion Cast signing off. Thank you.